And hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory to you, O Lord. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about five thousand in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became, became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. And now may the words of my lips and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Please do. In their wisdom, the compilers of the lectionary, this cycle of readings which we use in the Church of England, have put together for today both the feeding of the 5,000 and also the walking on the water. These are two events of great significance. These are things of which there is much to say. And were I to go and wax lyrical on both of them and give you both barrels and let you have everything that I feel you should know about these things, you would be here long after your turkey crown has dried in the oven and your sprouts have gone soft. So instead, I want to just focus on two verses, two verses which you find in the middle, because between them, they say something quite significant about not only the nature of Christianity, but also the nature of the Christian church. The two verses read like this. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Now in order to get a bit of a grip 
on what is going on there, you need to know something about what this figure, the prophet, who he is and what the hope is. You see, he is mentioned by Moses back in Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 18 verse 15, Moses says, and I better get it right, Moses says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. Now this, of course, was written some 1,500 years before. But Moses clearly understood that another like him would come up. And if you think about what Moses did, then you can see why it is that the Jews at the time of the feeding of the 5,000 were so much looking forward to that prophecy, that hope being fulfilled. Moses, you see, was the great liberator of the Hebrew people. It was Moses who took the Israelites from Egypt, where they were in slavery, and led them in a lengthy manner, eventually, to the promised land. So Moses is very much identified as the leader of the people who brings freedom to the people, who sets the captives free, who takes people from the bondage and the yoke of the Egyptians and gives them the promised land. Now, they've, yes, come back from exile centuries before, but now, at the time that this um, is taking place, at the feeding of the 5,000, the Jews find themselves under occupation once more. Now, they're not under such hard bondage as they were in Egypt, but nonetheless, they are still being occupied by the Roman forces. And such is the terms of the occupation that they find that their freedoms are quite strongly curtailed. Should you wish to celebrate one of the major festivals at the temple, you had to go to the fortress that was built next to the temple. You'd go, you'd knock on the door, and you say, may we please borrow the vestments, the finery which they would wear, so that they could celebrate the festival. The Romans, no doubt, would sign them out, sign here, tick here, fit in your dress here, all test and trace. So they'd send out so they could then go and celebrate the great festival that they had, then they would come back afterwards, robes neatly folded up. They'd knock on the door of the fortress once more and they would return the robes and in return they'd no doubt get their 10 shekel deposit they had to leave. The point of all of this is, is that everything was highly structured from the point of view of the Romans. Every day then prayers were offered but incense was burnt and prayers were offered for the benefit of the emperor. This is really rubbing things in. This is praying every day for the benefit of the person who is occupying your country. So when they're thinking back to Moses, who brought the people to freedom, when they see Jesus and what he is doing and what he is teaching, they think, here we have a liberator once more. Jesus' teaching, we know from Matthew, Mark and Luke, is full of the kingdom of God. Here they are thinking, here is the prophet, here is one that we should take up and make king, and finally, finally, we will be free once more. And in response to this, well, Jesus doesn't embrace this. Jesus doesn't say, yes, I am your king and I shall come and lead you. Jesus withdraws and leaves them because he doesn't want to be taken by force, as we read, and made king. And the question is why? Why is it that Jesus is so allergic to this kind of king making when he after all is the king of the kingdom of God? He is after all the king of kings. Why would it be that he would resist this? I mean when you look at the crucifixion there attached to the cross above his head is the legend Jesus of Nazareth king 
of the Jews. We go back to John's Gospel. Earlier, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, you remember who came to him by cover of night, Jesus says to Nicodemus, Truly, truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So we realise here that when Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God, he's not talking about something with boundaries and with laws and with passports and with all the other paraphernalia you get in a kingdom. He's not talking about a state. He's not talking about the state of Israel. He's not talking about any of that. What he is talking about is a kingdom made up of people who have been, as he says, born of water and the Spirit. Entry into this kingdom is not by means of a passport, it's by something much deeper. It's by means of being filled with the Spirit of God. And how does that occur? Well, it occurs as people place themselves under the authority of God. It occurs as people place their trust in Christ and his sacrifice on our behalf. It is as we stop trying to earn our way into heaven and accept that only Christ can get us there. And so we place our trust entirely in him. That's how citizenship of heaven is done. It's not geographical. Right towards the end of the self-saying gospel, Jesus is talking to Pilate. My kingdom is not of this world, Jesus says. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. This is not an earthly kingdom. This is not an earthly kingdom that Jesus has in mind. Jesus has something quite different in mind. Well, what would that be? Well, to answer that question, it's helpful to go back to this word kingdom once more. If you were, because you've got these long summer evenings ahead of you and there's not much on telly, if you were to try and spend your evenings looking at your Greek dictionary, you'd look up the word basileia, which is the, the, the word for kingdom, and in that you'd look it up and you'd find that the primary meaning of the word is not kingdom. The primary meaning of the word, in fact, is reign. Now, you can see how you get to kingdom from that. A kingdom is a place where a certain person reigns. But actually, the primary, primary meaning of the word is reign. So really, we would be somewhat better, rather than saying the kingdom of God, as to saying the reign of God. Because ultimately, what is being said here is that the kingdom of God is made up of those people over whom God reigns. It's not geographical. It's not something that you can take somebody by force and make them king of that. It's the place where God reigns. It's an issue, in other words, of your heart and not of borders. You see something of this, I suppose, if you were to go to to the Algarve when we're allowed again, and you were to go and go to certain places there, and you'd find, no doubt, British pubs there selling their warm beer. Sky Sports would be on the the telly in the corner of the bar with, with the Premier League on, and there'll be British Bulldogs, no doubt, there in the window stuff. There'll be all sorts of Union Jacks because they're serving the expat community that there is there in the Algarve. They are the people, yes, who may be living in Spain, but they are still citizens of Her Britannic Majesty. Their hearts, if you like, are still being ruled over by the Queen. And we are to be that kind of expat community, 
Paul talks about this when he writes to the church in Philippi. He calls them citizens of heaven, knowing that that people, the people who lived in Philippi, which was a Roman colony, and therefore by virtue of their birth, they were citizens of Rome, they'd understand how this all worked. You may live in one place, but be a citizen elsewhere. We may live here, but Jesus' kingdom isn't of this earth. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. We are citizens of heaven, as Paul would put it. This is the kind of thing that Jesus is getting at. Which means that when you're building the kingdom of God, you're building the kingdom of God not by doing so many good things, you're building the kingdom of God by spreading the message of God, by inviting more people to come under the reign of God, because that is how the kingdom of God is made up. And that's why Jesus didn't want to be taken by force and made king, because they were looking for the wrong kind of kingdom. They were looking for the wrong kind of king. They hadn't really understood what Jesus was about. They were after a king who was a political or a geographical king, but actually Jesus is offering something deeper and more lasting. He's offering that people may come under the reign of God. There is an irony here. The greatest of the Jewish kings, of course, was King David. Now, King David was the greatest of the kings because under his reign, the borders of Israel extended to their farthest extent. They were wider than they had been before. King David was the great military leader. It was said, it was sung, the women sang of David before he was made king, that Saul kills in his thousands, but David in his tens of thousands. He was a mighty warrior. But he was also a man after God's own heart, we read. That self-same David, the mighty warrior, was the David who wrote the Psalms, one whose heart we can see written out. Imagine that. You can read and see what is going on in the mind of somebody 3,000 years ago. His heart is after God. He is somebody who is aiming to put himself under the reign of God. Yes, he may get it wrong, asked Bathsheba, but nonetheless, he still repents and comes back and wants to be under the reign of God. So when they wanted to make Jesus a king, like King David, it's that they should have been looking for, but instead they were looking for the military alternative. Here, you see, is the great thing. To be a member of the kingdom of God is to come under the reign of God. It is not, it's not something you can inherit. You can't be a Christian because your parents were. It's not something that comes by virtue of where you were born. I'm born in England, therefore I must be Christian. No, 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 it's none of that. Entry into the kingdom of God is done soul by soul, individual by individual. It's a question of asking yourself, who reigns over me? Is it God and his commands or is it myself, what I think is best? Or is it wider society or what I feel the peer pressure to do? It's not a geographical thing. It's something deeper and greater. And in the end, the kingdoms of this earth, we can see this through history, the kingdoms of this earth come, they rise and they fall. But the fact of the matter is the kingdom of God endures forever. Amen.